Welcome back. So this is our Q&A. We do this at the end of every uh, weekend, as I say, to ask questions about what's been said or, or even other things. So we'll start. There's a few um, based on some of the uh, talks. I'll probably take them in, uh, in order, uh, going back to Jesus cleansing the temple. There's a couple relating to that. Someone thanking you for the, your teaching this weekend, reflecting on Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, and you'd made application with regard to today. You know, Jesus' zeal for worship, uh, church worship. He's zealous that he's worshipped in, in the right way, in the best way. Um, and so the question has two parts. How should we best respond when things uh, happen that we believe are not in keeping with God's word? Imagine, you know, if you're in your congregation that you're part of, your local church, uh, ex- for example, if a sermon was replaced by a question and answer like this <laughs> in, in an evening service of work, you know, this is different, obviously it's a weekend, but if the, the sermon was replaced with a Q&A in an evening service <clears throat> with no biblical preaching, uh, or secondly, uh, for those who hold to a complementarian position, maybe uh, you need to explain that, uh, Stafford, if anyone's unfamiliar, uh, roles in the church. Um, uh, if a woman was being regularly asked to preach, uh, is it appropriate to go to another church on those occasions? Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to break that one down, you know. So, uh, I, um, my problem is John Graham preaches on a Sunday evening in Hill Street, and I'm sometimes tempted to go somewhere else. <laughs> <and> that, I... <laughs> it's not your... <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. Uh, what if you don't like the preacher? Uh, whether it's male or female might be a bigger question. But if you've got a, a matter of conscience about a woman preaching, um, then I think you need to you know, understand, is this, going to, is this a regular feature uh, of the church to which you belong? Uh, and if it is, then that's going to create a a bigger problem for you but if it's a one-off thing then my my feeling always is if you have any difficulty with what happens in a service of worship that you talk to the minister you talk to the elders in the church and say look I I have a struggle with this Uh, this really doesn't uh, doesn't fit with what I think the Bible teaches on this particular matter Um, and maybe you can help me understand that so I would always begin it with a discussion uh, with them in terms of what, what the particular practice is. The, the bigger issue of conscience is if you're complementarian, which is that you believe that men and women are equal uh, in terms of their relationship with God, equal within the kingdom of God, but that they have been assigned different roles by God uh, within his kingdom. And you feel that the, the role of leading and teaching belongs only to men, and a woman's been asked to do this regularly, then, you know, you've arrived at that position and your conscience is bound by what you believe the word of God to teach. So it's always a very dangerous thing to go against your conscience. You ought not to do that. Um, But your conscience can be educated uh, so that you just don't get a hang-up about something that's stupid or something that's crazy. Um, and, And that's why one of the things I was saying, sometimes... There are people within church who are very easily offended and find things to be very, very difficult, <clears throat> and they will complain about them. You know, if you're a leader in a church, you're on the receiving end of that complaint. But, and if the issue doesn't have kind of biblical 
justification, then I think it's one to be resolved. But if you really feel as though you're being pushed and your conscience is being offended by something that happens regularly within a church, then first of all, talk to the leaders of that church, um, of your church, and find out what the issue is with them, discuss it through. And then if that's going to be the position of the church and you're so unhappy with it, uh, then you probably should look to join another church. But I, I, I've had people complain to me about all kinds of things in church. You know, I've had elders come out. Yeah, yeah, one church where I was, we introduced or we had a, a youth orchestra within the church. And on a particular Sunday morning, they were leading the worship. And we took the communion table and we set it over to the side so that we would have space for all the musicians at the front. And I had an elder on my doorstep the next Monday morning saying, if you ever move that communion table again, my wife and I will not be back in church. You dare not move that communion table. You know, I must make it a big issue out of that. Um, and, you know, it's a serious enough conversation you have with them. You say, well, what exactly are you saying here? You know, what, what, are, what are you bound to? What's the, what's the principle that's involved here? And it was, it's just, they were wanting... It was their way of saying, we don't want a youth orchestra leading the praise, we just want the organ, you know. Um, and then <clears throat> if you go, <clears throat> issues of music, issues of uh, the conduct of worship. In Irish Presbyterianism, we have a, a long and a glorious tradition of falling out with each other uh, <laughs> over these kind of issues. Um, if you go back to the turn of the 19th, 20th century, the big issue was, should there be organs in churches? Uh, or should praise just be unaccompanied? And there's a, an interesting story that a, an elder from First Balamina uh, stood up at the General Assembly and said, uh, yes, moderator, um, I have to report that we do have an organ uh, in First Balamina, but I want to reassure the Assembly that it's placed in the transept so that most people in the congregation can't see it. It's used only for the Sunday school, and the building is well aired after it has been used. <laughs> uh, but those were the kind of arguments that were going on, you know, back at the beginning of the time, about the use of an organ. Now we have people getting on their high horse about if an organ is used, you know, why are you using that stupid organ? You know, uh, why are you spending all that money and get that organ fixed? We don't want that organ. Why can we not just do with an electric piano and a couple of guitars? So people fall out about all kinds of things. But the... Um, the issue of conscience, and I would respect someone who holds to a complementarian position constantly being exposed to a ministry that they don't think has biblical validation. Uh, I think they should discuss that with their leadership, and if that can't be resolved, then uh, they're probably looking to go somewhere else. Okay. I'll come back on just so that the person feels their question's been answered. The, there's... If the sermon was replaced by a Q&A, and I suppose this is off the back of you know, Jesus' concern for worship today, so I suppose I'll maybe add the question of what are the essential elements of worship? You know, what should we be doing yeah. in worship? What shouldn't we be doing? And so there's a specific example. Maybe this has happened for Sunday evening worship. There's no sermon. Instead, it's a Q&A. Well, if it's just a one-off thing, you know, I, I think you can probably... I think most people could probably live with that. It, you get back to the whole question of what is a sermon? Is a sermon just a monologue delivered by one speaker? Or do you have examples in the Bible of two speakers 
uh, and there's a dialogue going on that one person speaks and another person responds, so that you find that in a, in a number of cases. And you could say that Jesus telling of parables, you know, that Jesus is the one speaker, but he's playing out a number of parts, you know, in terms of the story that he tells. And it becomes very intriguing, you know, the, uh, you know whatever of the parables you want to, to pick. So um, I, I wouldn't see it particularly wrong, Ben, if, say, on a particular Sunday evening, I'm sitting, you know, you're sitting there asking the questions. And tonight we want to discuss this, and here's the question. And then I respond. And then, you know, we go back and forward responding. That's not to say that that's not biblical teaching or that's not God-honoring worship. Um, but, you know, we're used to being, delivering the sermon in a particular form. I think I have bigger issues over screens and the use of screens, but we don't want to get into that one. Um, Do you want to get into that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's nods there. <laughs> yeah. For it. There's plenty of time until lunch. Well, um, I, I, I think in a lot of churches we have installed screens and use them in worship simply because they're there. And there's been absolutely no thought given to the use of images in worship. Now, our Reformed forefathers were very, very clear about this. No images in worship. You know, so you go back to the Reformation. They're clearing out all the church buildings of any statues, of any icons, uh, of any images. So that they were meeting in a very simple barn-like structure gathered around uh, the reading desk, around the pulpit to hear the word of God. And suddenly, you know, in my, my lifetime, screens have come along and they're being used extensively uh, in worship. Now, it's great in terms of the words of songs. I think that's, that's fine because it allows you then uh, to innovate in terms of the new songs that you're bringing uh, to a congregation and encouraging them to sing. But I wrote a wee blog post uh, a couple of years ago in praise of the hymn book, um, in which I said, when, you, when you're looking at even at the words of songs on a screen, you can only see the words of that one particular verse. Whereas if you have a hymn book, you can see the flow and the development uh, of the thought within the whole hymn. You can see the verse that goes before and the verse that comes after. And many of the hymns are very thoughtfully constructed in the past. You know, they have a Trinitarian uh, format to them, or they have a kind of history of redemption, uh, deliverance. Even that one we were singing this morning, that lovely carol, you know, you could see verse after verse, but it was kind of unfolding all the benefits of Messiah as he came. And if you had all that before, you could see each element of that, even as you were singing the hymn. So even just by projecting the words of hymns onto a screen, I think to some extent um, minimizes and dis- detracts you know, from, from worship. But then uh, lots of ministers now uh, want to put up images and pictures and even video clips. And I begin to think, what does that have to do with the second commandment? You know, what are we trying to illustrate here? Are images appropriate in worship? if our Reformed forefathers were so opposed to them. Um, it, to me, it's, it, it just hasn't been given the thought and the reflection that it could be given. Don't be going back to your churches and saying, <laughs> Stafford Carson's against screens and worship. But, uh, you know, there's some churches I go to and they have screens all around the place just because, you know, our forefathers were very wise. The only visible point 
in the meeting house in churches where I have been minister has been the pulpit. You know, if you've got a gallery upstairs, people downstairs, transepts, even a T-shaped building, everybody can see the pulpit. And that's because all focus had to be on the preaching and the hearing of, of the word of God. But now we want all these other people to be involved. So all modern church buildings are now more like theatres, aren't they? You know, uh, and uh, we're much more open to a whole range of people uh, taking part in, in worship. And then because we've been in older meeting houses that were designed in a particular way, we have to put up a multitude of screens. So you've got a screen in the front of all the galleries. So there's some places that have got three screens around the gallery. And um, if you're in the pulpit and you're preaching, they've got an image of you in front of you. You know, you're preaching. So it's like preaching in timber. Can you imagine? It's bad enough listening to yourself, but actually seeing yourself as you preach it. So... Very, very off-putting. I've probably said enough on that, but maybe somebody wants to come back on that one. You disagree with me. You can maybe do that uh, in private. If, uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that has answered those questions just on worship. And uh, we'll move on then uh, to, I suppose this is sort of connected. Should I be a member of my church? Is it biblical? Um, I'm assuming that is membership biblical rather than is my church biblical, I'm assuming is the question. Yeah. And then connect to that, how do I be a good church member? Yeah, do, do boy, that? that's a great question and a very relevant and important one. And, you know, even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we wouldn't have asked that question. But it's now become a very contemporary question um, because more and more people are affiliating themselves with a church or a fellowship without actually becoming members. And there's many of the newer churches and fellowships that don't actually have a membership list. You know, you're not formally a member. Um, so you can be there, you can be about it, you can be part of the fellowship there, but membership is never defined. Uh, and the leadership, you know, the congregation have no say pretty much in the leadership. It's the elders or the minister or the pastor who makes all the decisions and the congregation's never really consulted on any of those matters. Um, I, I, and some people, I, my experience recently uh, in Presbyterian churches is some people were reluctant to join a church because part of it meant getting a set of envelopes to record your financial contributions to the church. And they really didn't like that idea. People know what I'm giving. Uh, and you tried to say to them, well, it's not that we know what you're giving. It's so that you know that the church is accountable for what you give. And they actually track and keep a record. Uh, and you can actually show uh, the, the accountability there. Um, but people don't want to become members because they think it, it's a general commitment phobia. Nobody wants to be committed in many ways. But yes, membership of the local church is, if we sermon on this and I talk about your identity in Christ, if you're a member and joined to Christ, then you're also a member of his body. So you're simply recognizing what I was talking about earlier this morning, you know, your connectedness to other other Christians and other believers within this local fellowship. It's the way in which you'll grow in your faith. Because within the fellowship of that church, there will be leadership. There will be pastoral oversight. You don't have to be your own pastor. You don't have to be your own shepherd. There are other people whom God has appointed to help you and to encourage you. 
and to support you whenever you, you need that help. And uh, the church is actually, it's not God's plan B, it's God's plan A. Uh, ultimately, we bring glory to Christ uh, because at the end of Ephesians uh, 3, it's saying, you know, it's to Christ that there be glory in the church. And he presents the church as a radiant bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So, yeah, I'm very, very enthusiastic about people belonging and being loyal um, to a particular fellowship and to their own church. And do you, do you wonder, just to follow up on that, we're living in quite an individualistic age, and I think they can, we can sort of transfer that into our understanding of you know, encouraging us to read our Bibles at home, and we sometimes read... Uh, some of what we see in the New Testament and it's all very individual application <coughs> and it's what I in English we have you and it's you as single and plural we obviously if you're not speaking the Queen's English you say uh, yous um, <laughs> but basically most of the you in the New Testament letters from Paul by grace you it's you all have been saved it's a letter to the church so it's and I think sometimes we think this is just a promise for me or this is just about yeah. me, but it's actually, it's written, it's addressed to the church. So if you're not part of the church, well then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then how do you be a good church member if you, if you realise yeah. that it is important <clears throat> to be part of that? Uh, I, well, I, I think, obviously, uh, by your attendance and by being there, you know, um, <laughs> remember one guy said, well, I won't be with you on Sunday evening, Pastor, but I'll be there with you in spirit. And uh, the pastor said to him, well, maybe sometime you'll bring your body along. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I think it's just a question of being regular and, and, and being there. And your very presence is a ministry of encouragement. You know, I, I know that most ministers and pastors uh, assess their ministry in terms of A, B, C. Attendance, buildings and cash. You know, they, how many do we have coming? What are our buildings like and how much cash is coming in? And that's a very silly way to assess uh, the progress of the ministry. We're looking more for fruitfulness uh, in other areas. But uh, by actually being there, uh, you're, um, you're a source of encouragement. Then by praying for your church and by words of encouragement mean an awful lot. Uh, those of us who have been involved in ministry were very sensitive souls, far more sensitive than you realise. And the, the, the area and the time when we're most sensitive is immediately after we have preached. So we have this silly practice of going to the door to shake hands with people after. And we're going there in fear and trembling sometimes. What, what will the people say? And it used to be after church, if anybody had any issue or any problem, they would come to you and complain and sound off. And I used to come home on Sunday at lunchtime and kind of be very morose or blow off over the the lunch table about so-and-so came to me, they were complaining about this, you know. Simple things, you know, if somebody's coming out of church, shaking hands with somebody, and they say to this woman, how's your mother? I was in with her this week, she wasn't so well. Is she keeping any better? And she said, no, she's, she's improved, she's doing, doing right. And the next woman comes out and they shake hands with her, and she goes on, and then she turns back and says to me, you didn't ask me about my mother. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, so people have all kinds of things to come. So you had sound off about... You know, they've expressed themselves badly. They've complained about something you've done or something you've said. And then um, Patricia's very sensible. 
she would wait maybe until Sunday evening, or sometimes she'd wait till Monday, and she would say to me, well, you know, that complaint they were making, maybe there's a wee germ of truth there, you know, maybe, maybe they had something to say. And of course she was right, you know, there, there was something worth complaining about. But we're, we're very sensitive. So if you give a word of encouragement, you know, something like just send in a wee tweet or uh, a wee message uh, to your preacher or your pastor or somebody who's ministered to you or even thanks for the music today and thanks to Daniel and the brothers for the music over the weekend. Like that is so important. When the music's right, everything's right in the service. And when the music's wrong, everything's wrong. Um, but, you know, e- even if, if you have a, had singers, people taking part in the service, send them a wee message. Say, really appreciated that. Thanks very much. That was very helpful. Um, and, and that's how to be a good church member. Okay. Thank you for that. We'll move on. Uh, Question here, you say we are born again and no longer in bondage to sin. Why do we who were saved as children do worse sins as adults at times? Yeah, so we mature spiritually, but we also mature in our sinning, you know, and we become, we talk about original sin, and I know some of us are very original in the way in which we we, we sin. Um, Yeah, this this struggle with sin in our lives is, is is a big, big issue. Um, I, I have to say, I can never remember a time in my life where if you'd asked me, do you love Jesus, that I wouldn't have said yes. So I've been kind of raised in a Christian environment all my life. Now, does that mean that I have lived a perfect... No, of course it doesn't. And, and th- this battle with sin and evil is just going on in my heart and my life all the time. So I'm part of a theology committee for Tear Fund. You know Tear Fund? And they have a theology committee. We kind of oversee all the different strategies that Tear Fund puts in place in terms of meeting the needs of poor, poor people all across the world. And I've served in that committee with eminent people, Bishop Harold Miller, recently retired, and Elaine Storkey. I don't know whether you know the name Elaine Storkey. Elaine is quite a quite a phenomenal brain and a great communicator. You'll hear her often in Radio 4. She'll do Thought for the Day. And William Crawley sometimes phones her if he wants a sensible answer. I I love it when he phones her because Elaine gives good answers. But she was just retiring off the committee on Thursday afternoon there. And um, she was given a kind of final wee word. And she went through the four finalies that Paul has in his letters, you know, Thessalonians, and in Ephesians, you know, finally be strong in the Lord. And, and the point Elaine was making, I thought was a great point, is this battle with sin and evil doesn't end. Doesn't end for us. Doesn't end for the church. And as we actually get older, um, I think we are increasingly influenced by the culture around us. And it's so hard to resist the overtures of that culture in terms of what we do and in terms of how we behave. You know, if you think about it, uh, 160 hours every week and we expose ourselves to Christian worship and Christian teaching for maybe two or three, maybe four hours of that a week corporately. But for the rest of it, how much time in comparison to that do we expose ourselves to Facebook to TV, to the radio, to all the stuff that's online. 
And all of that stuff influences us massively and pushes us in the wrong, wrong direction. So it's, it's such a battle. Uh, and that's why we need to constantly go back and remind, here's who I am. I don't belong there. I belong to Christ. Uh, this is my identity in him. I'm trusting in him. Uh, and I need to, need to follow his ways. But I, I'm telling my, myself that more often now than ever before, simply because I probably go onto the internet far too often. Okay. Um, a few, two or three questions here relating a th- mostly to John 3.16 uh, and what you said on that uh, last night. Uh, I'll go through them here. Uh, well, one is, can you be saved and lost? Uh, another is, if God loves the whole world, how does it not wreck him that some perish? Why would he do that to himself? Um, and then... Uh, maybe we could start with this and work backwards. Why doesn't verse 16, John 3, say, for God so loved those whom he has elected? Uh, How does God loving the world fit with the doctrine of predestination? Yeah. Go with that one first and then we can come back to it. Okay. Um, The, um, I read a book in preparation. I read a book of, um, articles by Kevin Van Hooser on uh, the idea of the love of God. And one of the articles is talking, describes it this way, I'm surprised, the difficult doctrine of the love of God. And there are all kinds of challenges when we say that God so loved the world. Now, the point I was making was not so much the extent and the quantity of those whom God's love, but the nature and the quality of those whom God's love. And I think that's John's point, that he loves the world. Now, there's a sense in which he has shown his love to all of his creatures and to all of his creation. But the Bible nuances that and says, whilst there's evidence of God's common grace and evidence of God's love apparent all through the world in terms of his goodness and his mercy, there is this special focused love of God on those whom he has chosen. So it's not that the two things are in opposition, but you're, you're nuancing the doctrine of the love of God. Yes, we, we receive tokens of God's love and grace in our normal everyday lives. Everybody benefits from that. The sun rises he, you know, on, the, on the just and the unjust. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. But don't misunderstand the fact that God has special love for those who are his own. So um, even though there's evidence of his love generally scattered uh, all throughout the world, God is determined to bring glory to himself and glory to his son. And he does that by working specifically and directly uh, with those who are his own in calling them and making them his own. So you have all that evidence in John 17, where Jesus talks about those whom the father has given him his own his own people as being the object. So you can say uh, they're, they're not contradictory, but I think the doctrine of predestination fits in within this wider compass of God being love. Um, so this book of articles had written one writer uh, is writing and saying, I wish universalism was true. I wish that everybody would be saved. I wish that God's love was bestowed on everyone. But he says that doesn't do justice to the idea that people may choose and certainly doesn't do justice to the data of the Bible, which says that not everybody uh, will be saved and not everybody will come to Christ. So we, we live with that, with that tension. 
we, we live that both these things are true uh, and we can't in our own mind totally reconcile them all but we have to say well where the Bible speaks we can speak where the Bible's silent we're silent and the Bible says God loves the world he shows evidence of his love to everyone and to all his creatures but it's also true that he loves his own people his church with a special committed love okay um this uh, question on how does that not wreck uh, God? Yeah, the well, you read the Old Testament now, and when Israel sinned and wandered away, you, you know, God is, God is hurt by that. He lives with the pain of that. And then how, how do you, you can <clears throat> explain again Jesus, you know, weeping over Jerusalem? You know, how often would I have gathered you? But you would not. So there's, there's a sadness, there's a, a grief there in the heart of our Lord as he thinks about those who have not come. Um, and does it not grieve us too to know that there are so many who refuse to come, don't respond? That's why we pray. Such great sadness that very good, very fine people we know have not come to profess Christ as, as Lord and Saviour. Um. Can you be saved and lost? Maybe a question relating to God. If he, God has his elect, his chosen, yeah. those who are predestined, will they persevere to the end? Yeah, or, or I, I, that? yeah I, absolutely. Um, I, I think very often the, the practical way this shows itself is sometimes you find there's someone who professes faith in Christ and for a while they are very bright and energetic and commit it to the work of the kingdom, but then they fall away. And you begin to say, were they saved, and now are they lost? And the, the most helpful uh, part of the Bible that speaks to that is the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, where Jesus himself says, you know, here's different soils, here's the seed sown, but only in one case of the four does it actually yield fruit? That there are many people who will make a profession of faith, <clears throat> many people who will appear to be growing, but either it's rocky or the thorns grow up and choke it, and they don't actually produce the fruit. Um, so you begin to say, were they genuine believers in the first place or not? Um, my son Luke <clears throat> was just talking about, he, he works in the prison ministry in London. He says, he, you know, he meets lots of these guys in Pentonville particularly, and they have Bible studies there, and a lot of them have come to the Lord. There's just, just a steady stream who, who profess faith. And while they're in prison, you know, in a discipleship group in prison, and coming to church in prison and being, looks in there kind of every week, meeting with them and talking to them, they, they seem to be doing very, very well. And then as soon as they get out, they get back into their old circle of friends and acquaintances. And he says it's just the parable of the soils all over again. You know, the good life that was there just seems to evaporate and they get choked again uh, by the cares of this world. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has an interesting point <clears throat> on this. He says if you've got someone who was formerly professing to be a Christian and no longer professes to be a Christian. He says the key question is, are they happy? If someone professes to be a Christian and then has backslidden 
and they're unhappy <laughs> in that backslidden condition and they're frustrated <clears throat> and they know they're not right. He says, they're, they're true believers. It's just they've wandered away and they, they'll come back again. But if someone who's professed faith and then wanders away and is quite happy to have wandered away, he says, then there may be evidence that they were never truly regenerate in the first place. Um, so, you know, we've had this steady stream of people who have professed faith and have walked away. You know, Josh Harris, I kiss gate dating goodbye, you know, and now he's kissed Christianity goodbye. Uh, did he get it wrong in the first bit? You know, I don't know. Um, okay, uh, well, we'll change tact here. We're a uh, uh, question on the Trinity. Is there a simple way to explain the Trinity to others? Quick answer, no. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. I, lots of good stuff written on that. Um, uh, if you want a reading list, I can offer one to you. But anything Mark Jones has written is pretty good. What have you read on the Trinity, you'd say? Yeah, Mark then. Jones' stuff's good. Also, Mark Jones was a former speaker here. He was here three speakers ago. Um, also, we've had Mike Reeves' uh, book, uh, The Good God, was plugged here a few years ago. So it's quite good. It's about 100 pages. So, um, it's easy enough to read, I think. Scott Scott Swain has a new book, The Introduction to the Trinity. Yeah, that'll great book. And it's just an introduction, John. Yeah, and it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's good. Probably the best. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's something you can answer very quickly. You need to read a book yeah. and think about it, don't you? And then just on in a book, there's Don Carson has a little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, which yeah. explores some of those questions. Maybe uh, whoever asked about that earlier. Um, Okay, anything else on that or we'll go on? That's fine. Okay. Uh, so a couple here, just one to your 25-year-old self. Uh, again, that was a good way I, I found to sort of address us here, even though I'm a bit older than that. Um, what tips would you give to your 25-year-old self on loving people that are hard and difficult to love? <laughs> uh, and then maybe a particular example of a non-Christian. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, you, you, you love people not because you feel loving towards them, but you just know it's the right thing to do. Um, and you, you don't ever allow your own prejudice to get in the way. And especially when you've fallen out with someone, you know, it's so important that you try to be restored and to be reconciled to them. Uh, I've had a few instances of that pretty, some of them made it to the press uh, and uh, people reported on it um, and you, you try hard then, even though there's a massive disagreement, to go to them and say, you know um, I still want uh, to be speaking with you and to be talking with you, we're not necessarily going to agree on everything uh, but we have an important role to keep all those relationships open uh, and not to be cut off from other people. Uh, and when, you, you know, when you're in a situation where someone has really let you down, and someone has really abandoned you, and somebody has been deceitful uh, towards you, and done things that have been deliberately, you can't see it any other way, but deliberately um, done in order to hurt you or to offend you, that is... That's very hard. So um, the, the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation begins in our own heart. 
you know, uh, you're ready, uh, first of all, to let go of that and, and to say, I'm not going to hold that in my heart because it's only poisoning me, it's only going to make me bitter. And then the second stage is to go and actually talk to people and to seek to be reconciled to them. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that's easy. The whole, goodness, this whole community of ours is racked by the problem of not being able to forgive. Um, and, and there are issues of justice and righteousness there um, that need to be addressed. Uh, Nicholas Woldersdorf, he has a book on, on justice. And, and he says, you know, you can't forgive someone who still stands over their, uh, their evil action. Uh, so, you know, his, his illustration is, if somebody comes in and murders my wife in our home, and I'm asked then, am I ready to forgive them? Well, so long as they still stand over that action and say, try to justify it in some way. He, he says they ought not to be forgiven, because that would be denying my love for my wife. It would be saying that their taking of my wife's life didn't mean anything. But precisely because I love her and I'm committed to her and they're standing over that action and, and not repenting of it, I'm, I'm not sure that you should actually consider um, forgiving them or being reconciled to them. So you, you play that out then and the whole troubles that have happened uh, in Ireland uh, and you say, um, how can we ever be reconciled in this country? And I know, John, you know, we had conversations about this with Brian Chappell, you remember? around our dinner table one night, um, you know, in terms of, um, of what happens. And there's, and the great example is Joseph. Joseph's brothers who mistreated him, mishandled him, sold him off into slavery. And yet he comes to the end where he's in a position to, to harm them and to get revenge, to get his own back. And those great words in the end of Genesis, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. So even in the evil actions, Joseph was aware of God's sovereignty being at work. Okay. Thank you. And last question. Uh, how do you most effectively share Jesus with our colleagues in a secular workplace? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was talking there about Dan Strange. I, I, I think there's a lot in in that work of Bavink uh, that can be very, very helpful because he's saying that in the hearts of everyone there is this longing, there's this magnet that's drawn towards key things. And of course, if you go to Romans chapter 1, uh, we say everybody knows that God exists. The divine nature, the invisible power of God is available to everyone. The problem is people have suppressed the truth. So people know that God is there and they know that God is true no matter how much they deny it. So the word for suppressing uh, the truth there in Romans chapter 1, you know, the illustration is like taking a beach ball in the swimming pool and trying to push it down underneath the surface. It keeps popping up. So no matter how much your non-Christian colleague may deny the legitimacy of your faith or the existence of God, deep in their own hearts, they know that God is there. That's what Roman 1 said. They do have a knowledge. So you can speak clearly about the existence of God. You can speak about your faith in Christ because people know 
that what you're saying is fundamentally true. Now, the, the big issue then, if you're in a workplace, comes down to the manner of your behaviour and the, the witness of your life more than the witness of your lips. But you shouldn't stay quiet. I think you have to express clearly, this is, this is what I'm doing this weekend. Uh, did you have a good weekend this weekend? Yeah, I was over in Castlewell. And, um, and, and what, what were you doing there? We, we were listening to the Bible being taught. Really? Yeah. Let me tell you how wonderful it was. Uh, you know, and you can begin to share what, what you've done over the weekend. I was at church on Sunday and I heard this. You know, so you're just simply telling your own story. And I think that's the... Uh, that's the valid way to, to, share, to share your faith. Um, and obviously, just being as consistent as you can in terms of your relationships with others, you know, showing, showing that love and that grace and that kindness and that goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, um, as you uh, work together with others. Okay. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Stafford, for answering those questions. And thanks for uh, all who, who put in maybe a personal question, but uh, lots of those questions, I imagine, lots of other people were, were maybe thinking similarly, so helpful to, to everyone. Um, if uh, Maybe, I'm sure, Stafford, if you want to get your seat at the lunch table beside Stafford, <laughs> if you want to follow up, I'm sure he'll be happy to ha have more uh, conversations about uh, I, those well, can, can we turn it to the audience? Okay. All right, know. go for it, yeah. I, I, I'm interested to hear your views on any of these things. Questions from the floor. Yeah. That last one, you hope to get fired for if you be too explicit about your faith in the workplace. You get in so much, so much trouble, like, uh, just one a colleague complain about you. Well, it, it depends to how aggressive you are and, and what, what you're actually saying. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's true. You need to be careful. Um, my daughter had a a friend who's the financial director of a large charity in London and at a conference in the informal bit where they're standing around drinking coffee he happened to say in conversation with a colleague that he didn't believe in gay marriage and that word got back to his bosses and he was asked to leave you know just for expressing that so yeah you're absolutely right yeah, well, I, I, th I think that's the, you know, the small end, the, that's the acceptable end of the spectrum, isn't it? You know, that people, uh, and I would do that, I would put the main points of my sermon up, or if I'm quoting a particular Bible verse, you know, I would, I would put that up. Uh, draws people's attention and it's, it's a helpful visual aid but it's still word rather than image I, I think my problem is when you get a lot of images to what extent is that detracting from from the word I, and you know how it is uh, behind uh, the words of songs sometimes we've got you know the rolling waves and uh, the uh, the sunlit skies and all that kind of stuff and I yeah. And increasingly I've noticed as well, it's not, you were mentioned about one verse, sometimes there's only one line, and if you were trying to sing along to that, by the time the, the line comes up, it's already too yeah. late, you know, so. Yeah, do you, do you think that's a legitimate concern of mine? Tell me if I'm wrong. No, no, I, I, I understand the, the concern, sometimes in terms of, like, in the scenario that you're saying, well, the other thing is, there's some things that on screen, 
they could come from anywhere. So, you know, with him, let's speak of that, sat down and just kind of decide what was in his temple. Yeah. Now you're a worship leader, for example, if you have one, just might decide, like, let us know what might be there and oh, is it cool new song out this week? Why don't we pick this up? And maybe the work on, you know, as important as uh, previous, you know, songs from previous generations yeah. or something like that. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, I, and the thing is, within a, uh, an approved hymn book, you have um, a resource of psalms and hymns that have been used by the church down through the ages. Um, I, I, and I think, you know, I think Keith Getty gets this. You know, I think he understands it. And he, he's saying, you know, there's a lot of modern stuff that is difficult. You know, I, I, I find just personally, there's a lot of, modern music that I like uh, but there's some stuff I find unsingable um, and it's just contentless um, but uh, if you have an approved hymn book you have a resource there and a heritage of Samadhi and Himadhi that uh, I, and you're connecting your congregation to the church of the past the church of all ages and the words you know we're singing words today for example that Christians have sung for centuries. And when you sing the words of the Psalms, you're connecting yourself right back into the Old Testament people of God. Uh, words that Christ himself may have sung, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, the, the new technology can be very, very helpful. I, I'm just saying, let's use it intelligently in a way that uh, doesn't detract from, from what we hold to be important. Yes, sir. Uh, was it right for churches to close in January 2021? <laughs> um, we'll book in for dinner here as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, my personal point of view is, I think, from the Presbyterian point of view and the main denominations, I think we were a bit too compliant uh, to government uh, regulations at that time. I, I would like to us to have been a wee bit more edgy and have pushed the government a wee bit more on all of this. Having said that, there are a couple of well-known situations where churches uh, were opportunities, were super spreaders actually, um, where people ignored the regulations completely and suffered as a consequence. Uh, I can think of a couple of congregations where you know the, the virus was spread simply by people coming along uh, together not using masks and not using any form of social distancing. Uh, but I, I, I think, Presbyterians, I, I think we've been super cautious, maybe overly cautious. Um, I, what, what do you think? I, I would guess from your question, you probably think they were, we should have gone ahead and stayed on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know, what, what's your general experience been of, the, you know, of a friend who's doing a, a master's degree in digital theology at Durham University, and they're making a difference between online worship and worship online. I'm not quite sure what the nuance is <laughs> in that, but what, what's your general feeling about online worship or worship? What, what do you think about watching a service on sitting in your sofa at home, church on the sofa? Does it work for you? No. It's different, isn't it? I enjoy the opportunity to hear other preachers. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I find that very helpful and actually probably spend more time in worship. Oh, because I had that free time where I could, you know, there's more services available on, online that I could listen my time between from work and things like that. So I find yeah. I found that were really helpful, but then at the same time, like this corporate worship was so sorely missed. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I said to somebody at the beginning of the pandemic, I was watching like three or four services every, every Sunday, you know. Checking out everybody all around the place, <laughs> making sure they're orthodox and giving them marks. You know, I almost had a little checklist there, you know, nine out of ten for that. Um, but um, as time has gone on, you know, it's much better to be back in church. Um, and I have, you know, Hill Street, John, what would you say? Handled it reasonably well? Yeah, we're, we're trying, we're trying. It's, it's been frustrating. It's just been frustrating. It was life support, I think that's what it was for us. Unknown time, it was life support online, but. You can't be being in the room. Sure you, you can't. can't. You've got to be there. You've got to be with your brothers and sisters. Hill Street went round the elders' districts. And, uh, and Patricia and I only sat together in worship once in 18 months. Just, to, you know, the Sundays I was invited, we were invited to come out away preaching somewhere. And there were, there were different, different reasons for that. But I went down to do a harvest service in Hilltown and Clonduff, if you know where that is. And it was great. You know, they sang the harvest hymns, and it was my first time back in um, uh, in public worship doing that that service. It was manna to my soul. It was like drinking nectar. You know, it was, it was great. Um, I, and I think this has been good, hasn't it? Yeah, great to be. The great point, that's, that's very well made. One of the things we were discussing at that tier fund meeting the other day was, you know, the inequality with regard to the vaccine. You know, here we are uh, discussing whether, you know, very young people should get the vaccine. And we've all been double and tripled jabbed uh, all over the place. And yet there are huge numbers of very vulnerable people across the world who haven't even had one vaccine. And that, that's an issue that needs to be addressed, doesn't it? And we need to tell the government that. Tier Fund's trying to tell the government that. Um, my office is in the city centre and there's often uh, some very loud pictures right outside the window and my colleagues get quite angry and the window's shut and then we're often talking about it over coffee. Um, but sometimes I do see myself agreeing that you know, the picture has been quite harsh and I would say he's not always preaching very loving things. You know, he starts with, you're wrong, you're sinners. Whereas I would say we need to be gentle with people and show them that God is loving as well as that we are sinners, not just the one side. So why would you advise I approach those conversations with my colleagues when they're so angry? Yeah, I, I, I think you can't do anything else but agree with them that sometimes, you know, what's being said is not exactly how you would want to, to present the message. Um, on the other hand, um, Philip Bradfield of the newsletter keeps sending me uh, messages. He wants me to comment on things. And the most recent one was, you know, about the street preachers 
in Belfast and in other towns in Armagh, for example, and even in Portadown, you know that they're they're trying to silence them. Uh, and we have this history in Northern Ireland of open air preaching. You know that there is a freedom of speech element to that. But when it comes to the actual content of the message, I I think many of the guys who engage in that are very well intentioned. You know, you'd want to say that, but you I would want to say to them, how fruitful is this? You know, and they, they wouldn't look at fruitfulness in any kind of category that we would want to say, well, I've done my bit, I've let them, you know. It's the kind of, what Scott Oliphant calls the burp effect. Um, they feel better and you're offended. You know, somebody comes and burps in your <laughs> face. Um, you know. I, and they, they probably feel better for having burped out all that gospel, uh, but everybody else out there has been offended by it. Uh, and I don't know how, how fruitful or how successful it actually is. So uh, it's an interesting conversation starter. Um, and, and you might actually say, well, uh, what Christianity says is this or what Jesus says is this. And you, you may get a chance actually to say what you would say if you were in that position. But yeah, you, you don't want to deny the free speech element. Um, and that's gone on in this country for a long, long time. But yet, you just wonder. It's a bit, you know, when I was starting off in ministry, I was being advised about preaching at funerals. You know, you, you often, you want to tell people at a funeral about the nature of life, death and eternity. Uh, but I had an older colleague who said, I just haven't heard of anybody ever being converted at a funeral in all his ministry. Um, so... Your, your ministry at, on the occasion of a funeral is, has to be sensitive and has to be uh, done well. Uh, so the same way open-air preaching, I think, has to, be, has to be sensitive and done well. But it has a particular tradition in this part of the world. And okay, I think so. Maybe just one more question. Um, Mark? Yeah, um, just thinking, how would you, you were sort of talking about John uh, 3.16 about yeah, you know, that's that's there's a big history to that, Mark, you know, going right back um, you find lots of people in the 16th, 17th, 18th century who, who were really worried, you know, am I among the elect or not? Um, there's actually the last big conversation I had about it. I was a member now of uh, Ben's congregation. Uh, he had discovered the, the doctrine of election and wasn't a believer and said, how can you people ever believe that and how do I know whether I'm amongst the elect or not? The, the simple answer to it is, Here's the love of Christ clearly displayed to you in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's the invitation of Christ. Whosoever will may come. Christ offers himself to you in the gospel. Come and feast on, on Christ. Um, it's not for you to speculate on who's in and who's out. The important thing is for you to know that you are focused exclusively on trusting trusting in Christ. Um, so it's just a simple communication of the gospel. Yeah. But um, lo lots of people back in the 
17th century particularly, really wrestled and worried over that and then eventually came to a place of peace. As they, so it's being Christ-centred in all of that. Thank you. That's a good way to, to end uh, our Q&A session.